amazing time of worship. We are, uh, I'm, I, I, I say this sometimes, uh, discombobulated or it's been a busy week or a different week or a difficult week, but I feel like I've got a great excuse this week for I have aged exponentially this week and becoming a grandfather. So thank you so much. It is all about me. I, that's why I photobombed every picture of the baby and everything. So I think we have a shot of little Carrie here. This is how I look often in the morning before coffee. So Carrie, our grandson, was born to my son Trey and his wife Brianna. And uh, it was, you know, for all the great things that welcoming a grandchild is, as many of you know and have warned me about and I've heard it for so long about it. You know, it's just a great relationship. And mo- most often we talk about because it's fun to wind them up and send them off to somebody else's house and that sort of thing. So we're looking forward to all of that. Um, but it was a very special week for us because um, in our particular circumstance, our son married one of our elder's daughters. We arranged marriages in the small house. And uh, we, uh, we, we, we said it has to be an elder's daughter. Don Cole happened to have one of, of appropriate age. So we said... Trey, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, I joke, I kid, of course. You know, we have to say that because a lot of people think sometimes when you say things sarcastically, of which is one of my spiritual gifts, it, people walk away and go, I cannot believe they arranged marriages. How cruel. But uh, if we were to, we don't, but if we were to, this is the one we would have picked for him. And uh, we are just, uh, it was really fun. Uh, the Cole family and the small family sharing this experience together. Uh, Don and I spent, uh, the, the, the long day in the, uh, the long day, like we had to do the work, the long day in the waiting room. And it was funny because I don't know if you know this or not, but Don loves to tell stories. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but we would be in the middle of a story and we kept getting interrupted by text messages constantly with updates. And, you know, and I'm thinking there's a reason why I'm the grandfather, I've done this eight times. I've been in the delivery room a million. I don't want to know what's going on. Just tell me when it's all good and happy. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, every time we would start a story, we were and we were both getting the same information at different times. And eventually we just started cracking up and just stopped talking to each other entirely waiting for updates. So, but it was great, great fun, great uh, blessing. And Carrie is uh, healthy and mom's recovering and, and all that kind of stuff. So, and my son's eyes are crossed now, trying to figure out how to carry the responsibility that he's involved in now and everything. It's great, great stuff. So, thank you all for your prayers, your encouragement, and celebrating this with us. I acknowledge that I have a unique platform, that something happens in my family, hundreds of people know about it. And so, uh, it is fun. It's a little bit daunting. I can't imagine being a Kardashian. You know, if you know anything about the Kardashians, everything, they blink twice and all of a sudden the rest of the world knows about it. So thanks for making me feel like a Kardashian this week. If you don't know who a Kardashian is, consider yourself blessed and do not try to find out. So, all right, this morning, uh, we're going to continue a series that we started last month. Um, we... Uh, I'll, I'll t- I'll, let me start it this way. I don't have a written introduction, so I never know how this is going to come out. Near and dear to the heart of God is how you and I treat our closest relationships. 
So often Christians have a public testimony, the thing that they know that they're supposed to believe about Jesus, the thing that they know they want you to believe and hear about Jesus, but sometimes it's difficult for us to live it out personally. And so uh, when rubber you know, meets the road and people want to know, okay, so you're saying Jesus can change my life, but what has he done in yours? Sometimes it's very difficult for people in the church to back that up. And so uh, it is important for us, the more that faith gets itself out there, and in the last couple of years, our people here at this church have stepped up in huge ways to become a more publicly visible, engaged in the ministry on the street kind of church. It's important for us to know that when we step out there, we're stepping out in integrity. And, and I don't know if you notice this, but one of the hardest places for us to maintain our integrity is with the people that know us the most, that are the most forgiving of all of our quirks and everything. We have a tendency to trample on that relationship, and then we put on the best face to everybody else, don't we? And so I thought it was important as the Lord was kind of speaking to me about this, going, okay, so we need to talk about what happens under the roof of the biblical household And so that you and I can take some time to fine-tune, to evaluate what is going on in the most important close-to-home relationships in our lives, so that as we seek to bring glory to God, it will come from a place of integrity. So last month, we uh, opened this can, and we talked about the fact that marriage as an institution is actually a good thing. And we were being a little sarcastic with this because, as I've stated, it's one of my uh, spiritual gifts, but also because society in general, and it happened in church last month, not in this service, you guys were all perfect saints, but in, in uh, the first service last month when I said marriage is a positive, someone went, because <laughs> that's the general attitude, right? We typically like to speak publicly about marriage as though it's this kind of thing that we endure. Even though most of us or a lot of us have experienced some pleasure and joy and a connection in our relationships and our marriage, it's not all bad. But somehow it's just become societally acceptable to snicker at the idea of marriage. So somehow we've just uh, had to learn how to endure it. And so we talked about this, that the Hebrews, uh, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that marriage is to be held in honor among all. Whether we're married, whether we're not, whether we're pre-marriage, whether we're divorced, whatever the case may be, that we would start to understand that marriage as an institution was given to God's people, was given to society to accomplish a specific purpose. And he knew going into this, it would involve sinful, messed up people. And yet he entrusted his, 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 uh, his institution, his union to these sinful people knowing that they would have to uphold it and honor it and, and, and endure through it and all of these things throughout the centuries. And so he says marriage is to be held in honor among all. So marriage is a positive. The goal last month, because we named this, I, I had named it like as though I tweeted anything in my life and I don't. And I think hashtags are for tweets, right? Are they not? Everyone's acting like, oh, I don't know social media. (laughs) You knew who the Kardashians were. So I know you know social media. That's the only way they're famous. So the, the, the whole thing of the title of hashtag marriage goals, because people see certain things that a celebrity does. They're out on date night and everyone goes, oh, marriage goals. 
That's our marriage goals. We want to be like, um, well, back when, uh, was it Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner and these people and stuff before they divorced? You know, marriage goals, there's our marriage goals and everything. Why? Because they went out and did something public. We have this tendency to elevate these simple gestures and call those our goals. When in fact, God says, I have something much deeper in mind for you. Marriage is a positive. The second metaphor, if you will, that we're going to get into very quickly here this morning, because we have something special planned in a few moments is that marriage is a picture. It's very important for you and me to remember that marriage is demonstrating or displaying something much more profound than we have a tendency to give it the respect due in our day-to-day lives. When you remember the, the, uh, the rhythm of creation, God said, I'll create this, and I said it was good. I created this, and I said it was good. I created that, and it was good. And he has this rhythm built. When did he pause? When did God interrupt his own rhythm? It was after he made man, and he paused to say, but it's not good that he's alone. And remember, it's not because this occurred to God that somehow he didn't think through his plan. He did all of this on purpose so that the gesture... The enormous gesture of saying something that he created was incomplete was so that you and I would pay attention and say, well, he, he didn't mess it up within six days already, did he? I mean, he's only had one shot at this and he's already blown it. Of course not. God had a perfect plan laid out and he paused and said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will literally, I will build, I will raise up out of the ground a helper suitable for him. I will give him Eve. Why? Because Adam went and complained to the Lord. Not necessarily. He was noticing that he was without his companionship. Was it because Adam had done something wrong and he said, well, I'm going to have to send him a babysitter, someone to be accountable to. It wasn't any of those things. In the midst of perfection in paradise, God said, not only have I given you all of this, but I've given you her too. A perfect compliment to enjoy, to experience all that I have for you together. So if God has seen fit to create such an institution in the midst of paradise, and we know that sin entered that equation and messed all of that up, it would be important, though, for us to remember what was the picture that God was intending when he created marriage to begin with. One of the quintessential passages for understanding our roles in marriage is found in Ephesians 5. Paul is addressing the Ephesian church and uh, I, I don't know much about art, and I'm not going to pretend as, as though I do. I, I love great art. Um, I, art is in my family in various ways, shapes and forms, and it's just really incredible to me to see that the talent that people have and everything. But I would be the type of person, if I was presenting artwork, I would say, I want you to see what the artist did here. And try to dis- uh, explain it the best I can make sense of it, what's really going on here. I would not be able to take credit for anything I've ever drawn or painted or anything and want to put it on display for you. Paul is taking that similar approach when he's looking at a portrait that God painted in creation. It, back in the Garden of, of Eden when he said that God built marriage to be one woman for one man for the rest of their life. He started painting this portrait using careful brush strokes, bringing in the right color, adjusting the lighting so that you and I could appreciate it more. And so what Paul is doing to the Ephesian church is he's saying, I just want you to stare at this portrait for a little bit. Stop just moving through it as though it's just fulfilling a purpose by hanging on the wall. Slow down, look at the artwork, pay attention to the brush strokes, try to understand 
what the artist is developing here. And so he says in, in Ephesians 5, uh, the, the actual passage that most of us will teach through when we're talking about uh, marriage from Ephesians begins in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, you can cheat and look at verse 22 a little bit, but we're jumping down to verse 25 for our purposes. We'll back up to verse 22 next month as we get into the other half of this portrait. He says this to the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, so Paul is saying, are you seeing what God did on this side of the portrait when he started painting those brushstrokes and taking careful uh, attention to the image he wanted, that subject, that half the equation was what he wanted the man in the relationship to emulate, how he wanted him to look. Sometimes we've seen some of those... Um, I don't know what they're called, but they're, it's almost like a 3D type picture that's usually on toys or something like that. You're looking, you think you see one image and you just turn it off to the side and you see another. So imagine if you could do that with God's painting and you just turn it a little bit and you said, I thought I was looking at a, at a created husband there, but instead what I'm supposed to be seeing is the image of Jesus himself. As I just look at that from a different angle, oh, okay, I see who's behind all this. I see an image of the savior there. So Paul says, as we're paying attention to the brushstrokes, verse 28 sums it up. He says, so, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Where do we get that from? Because that is exactly what Christ did for us earlier in verse 25. How did he love? He gave. Who did he give or what did he give? All of him, himself. And so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Let's kick around some cultural acceptable statements here, just because it's fun to pick on society sometimes. But it's really not a, a picking on of what goes on out there. I, I think we need to pick on a little bit of what we've adopted that's crept in, where we have the scriptures, we have God's principles, and we've allowed so much of the world out there. Back in the day when we used to teach on this more regularly, we'd always pick on Oprah and Dr. Phil and everything. Whoever the guru is now is going to handle this subject completely different than what I think the Bible is teaching. Paul is saying, husbands, if you are to love your wives, love her like you already love yourself. Now, those of us that are astute to our psycho babble and things might say, well, wait a second. I thought you couldn't love somebody else until you love who? Yourself. All that we ever hear is you can't appropriately love the next person until you learn to look in the mirror and love yourself more. I don't mean to be completely condescending about that. I do think it's a lie from the pits of hell. So I don't apologize for picking on it, but I understand how we fall in that trap because generation after generation after generation has been kicked around. Parentally, marriage relationships, we failed our kids. Our kids are growing up with all kinds of distorted self-images and everything. I understand the groaning of, of, of people that, that really want to fill that hole somewhere. But unfortunately... 
I believe Satan has rushed in and said, you just need to fill that with more love for you. One popular Christian writer says, it's like we all have this love cup that someone else is supposed to fill. My response to that would be, yeah, I appreciate that sentiment, but my love cup leaks. There's a hole in the bottom of my love cup. Every time I try to love myself and try to satisfy and, and arrive and attain at that place where I finally feel good about me, there's always something, Just the level just keeps coming down. My love cup keeps le- leaking because I will never attain the amount of self-love that I feel, here's the key, that I deserve. Paul is, is saying this, he says, He says, husbands, love your own wives as you already do yourself. That might have flown back in the first century, but we might be saying, hey, it's 2019, Paul. Not sure you can really say that anymore. He says in verse 29 to be even more controversial, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Husbands, here's our clue. If yesterday you felt tired and you let yourself go to bed, or if this morning you felt hungry and you let yourself eat something, or later on you feel a little tired, you're going to let yourself take a nap, or you know what, you've been waiting for that new car long enough, and by golly, I'm getting it. Any of the things, the steps that we've taken to just kind of look out for old number one is proving that even if we claim outwardly I don't love myself enough, I will find all kinds of ways to take care of me. And so what Paul wants a husband to think about doing, and this is going to have huge implications when we get to the other side of the porch and we talk to our wives, because we've turned this whole thing about the role of a wife in a Christian marriage as this really controversial thing. And I just don't think it is because when we understand what God intended, when he held this standard up high, he says, guys, dudes, listen, as much as you take care of yourself and as kind of robotic or second or first nature as that is, that's the position I want you to have your wife in. I want you to learn to look after her needs just like it's a second, not even a second thought. So Paul is saying, this is the picture. This is what God intended. Let me break it down to you in three, three uh, um, titles, if you will. But I want to quantify these titles. In this painting, in this portrait, the husband portrays God, as we've seen. As the head in the marriage, controversial statement number one. As head in the marriage, he is the most responsible Paul gives us this clue. He says, Jesus was preparing his bride for the big day and he wanted to make sure she was pure and clean and without spot and wrinkle. He would take the time to wash her with water with the word and all these spiritual metaphors that Paul is giving us. Why? Because the groom is thinking, it's my responsibility to make sure she shows up untainted. I'm not going to blame her. I want to make sure I've done everything I can. I'm I'm going to be responsible for the way she arrives. Imagine what would change in our marriages if men saw that their role as head was the most responsible, not the most authoritative. Responsibility and authority are not equal words. As savior from this passage, 
The husband is the most sacrificial. I've told marriages this all the time when we're in counseling and all these kinds of things. Listen, I know you've got a list of issues. I know, but he doesn't do this and she doesn't do this or she always does this and he always does this. If you were in a race to figure out how to lay your life down for the other person, you wouldn't even notice all those other things. If marriages were fighting to see who could sacrifice first and most often, can you imagine the marital bliss that would be taking place? As lover, which is a terrible word now. It's a gross word, isn't it? Like there's teens in this room right now throwing up. Like lover, that's disgusting. But loving is doing the best for the one love. So let's not turn this into a Barry White song or anything. Teens don't know who I'm talking about. But as the lover, he is the most giving. So the, the, the portrait that we are to see on this side of the painting, the image that we are supposed to see, what God intended with every brushstroke is that the husband in this relationship would emulate Jesus Christ in all the ways that he did for his bride, the church. I'm asking uh, John and Martha Farnham to come up here and share their story. Um, we, I teasingly say I'm to uh, get all the credit for their marital success. We did pre-marriage counseling together, um, but I'll, I'll correct the record afterwards, but I want you to hear their story, how this plays out. Thank you, Pastor Brent. Hi, my name is John Farnham, and this is my beautiful wife, Martha. We are not experts by any means on marriage. We are just here to share our story and hopefully encourage others through it. I became a believer as my previous marriage of 10 years was falling apart. After the final two years of struggles went by, I found myself as a single parent of two boys, ages 10 and 5. Being a newer Christian, I would listen to focus on the family as much as I could. I would listen to the Bible on CD during my work commute. I attended small group to get a better understanding of the Bible. Also, during that time, observed other happily married couples and how they interacted. I spent much time trying to figure out what my role in the divorce was and how to avoid it in the future. I've always enjoyed reading Christian women's books. Two of my favorite are Created to Be His Help Meet by Debbie Pearl and Power of a Praying Wife by Stormia Martin. These were the books I clung to during the last year of my previous marriage that was failing miserably. They gave me hope that if I played my part, my marriage would work. Little did I know that God was storing these studies away for future use. Instead, in that present time, I had to learn that it takes two to make a marriage work, two to make sacrifices, two to put the other's needs before their own, two to communicate, two to trust in God's holy design for marriage. After 12 years of being with the father of my children, I found myself a single mom, alone and feeling unloved, unworthy, ashamed that I had failed, and questioning why. Why had God allowed this to happen to me? However, after I stopped questioning and began trusting, God was able to put his plan for my life into motion. As the years passed, I became content, if not happy, with my life. I was alone, but I was in control. I was lonely, but I had my kids to fill my time. I didn't want to get married again, ever, though I envied others that seemed to have happy marriages. Then one day, after first service here at Faith, I went to say hello to a former student. Little did I know, I was also saying hello to his father, who would be my future husband. 
After nine years of trying to figure out who I was supposed to pursue, I finally gave it over to God, told him I couldn't figure it out. I asked God to make it obvious to me regarding who I was supposed to be with. Six months later, I met Martha here at Faith. I continued to pray regularly. I saw her in places and at times she shouldn't have been in. It was obvious to me that God had placed her in my life. My relationship with John was God-centered and God-led from the get-go, and in the last six years of marriage, that has not changed. There were many what non-Christians would call coincidences that confirmed for both of us that this was a relationship that God had ordained. We started dating. I was not asking her out on a date. I was looking for my future spouse. Initially, I was paying for all of our dates, as gentlemen should. But I was struggling, living paycheck to paycheck. The most humbling time was when I told her we could stay in or go out. But if we went out, she would have to pay. Thankfully, this did not scare her away. More and more often, I found myself thinking about the possibility of marriage. The advice that I was given was that couples should date for a year before getting married. This way, you can get to know the person in all seasons, and it is hard to hide things that long. Eventually, we got engaged and went through pre-marriage counseling. Thank you, Pastor Mark. We asked questions on a regular basis to try to prepare for different situations. We went to a marriage conference as an engaged couple, which included sessions specifically for us. As a couple, we felt well-prepared for marriage. Martha cleaned out one of the closets in the master bedroom for me. She used her own money to build a bedroom and a bathroom in the basement for my son. These actions told me she was committed to our future. One year after our first date, we got married. As led by Deuteronomy 24.5, which talks about man being free at home for one year, I backed away from most of my activities that I was involved in. In the year that we dated, I was able to see what a godly relationship looked like. Within five months, God softened my heart, and I went from never wanted to be married again to engaged. I knew there would be difficulties blending our two lives. After all, we were not fresh out of the gate. We were both older and had already built full lives for ourselves apart from one another. We both had children, his almost out of the house, and mine ranging from three to eight. Where would we live? How would we acclimate the kids? What about finances, jobs, vehicles? The list went on and on. However, God's peace that surpasses understanding allowed us to move forward without hesitation, and this total trust in God's plan for us to be together is the foundation for our continued lives together. There are many adjustments that take place in the first year of marriage. Ours was no exception. Things like what position the toilet seat needs to be in. Or how does the toilet paper roll really go on correctly? We were blending two families together. Although we had many discussions in premarital counseling, there were still many situations that came up that we hadn't covered. Situations that fell in the gray area and had no obvious answer. Since saying I do in June of 2013, I have had to make sacrifices, apologies, and allowances. I've had to pick my battles and turn the other cheek on occasion. 
I've had to communicate even when I felt like shutting down. I've had to pray for things that were not in my best interest, but were in my husband's best interest. Marriage is work, everyday work, but it is work that is worth the effort. Knowing that you are in God's will in your marriage is encouraging and motivating. A few instances stick out in my mind worthy of note here. Within the first few months of our marriage, we had a parenting disagreement. Imagine that. My husband asked my opinion on a situation with his son. I gave my opinion, and then he went and did the complete opposite. I was floored. I questioned why he wanted my opinion if he was going to ignore it. After all, I was an intelligent, sensible person that could give sound advice. However, I was determined to abide by my role as a godly wife. I let my husband know how I felt about the situation and then did not mention it again. Months later, after the situation with his son had resolved itself, we were able to talk about the process and grow in our decision-making and communication. Looking back, I see God was humbling me. My role was not to make the decision. My role was to support my husband. Not following my advice didn't mean he was ignoring it or didn't value it. It meant he took it under advisement and ultimately, as the leader of the household, did what he thought was right for our family. In this situation, I knew my wife was giving me wise and sound counsel. However, I had been doing things my own way for over 10 years, and that is where I felt comfortable. This was just one of many situations that God was using to help us grow together as one. God was using my poor decision to help build my confidence in Martha. We were figuring out what our roles were. During the week, I ended up filling up the dishwasher and sweeping after Martha and the kids left for school. I had not envisioned that this is what one of my roles would be. However, I felt it was important that when she came home from work, she didn't have a messy house to come home to. About a year ago, I was convicted to pray for my husband's work situation. He came to me with excitement about a change in position. I could see that the change invigorated him and would be good for him but I also saw all the ways it would affect me and our family. Through prayer, I realized that my role was to support my husband. He needed to be fulfilled, respected, and feel valued in his workplace. The job change would do that for him. So I bit my tongue and encouraged him to make the change. He did, and for the many months that he was in his new position, I watched as our family struggled to find a new way to function. Initially, my husband was happy in his new position. There was a new fire in his eyes, a new energy in his mood. I tried to focus on those positives and not on how it was making my life harder. I was encouraging to him, but in the silence, I took my fears and pessimism to the Lord. When I changed my job, it required me to leave for work at 4.20 in the morning. I wasn't getting home some nights until 6. This change in schedule forced Martha to take on more responsibility within the home, which concerned me and weighed on me. I didn't feel like I was taking care of my responsibilities at home. Ultimately, I knew that the change was not right and not, and not a good fit for our family. After six months in the new position, my husband realized the effects his job was having on our family. He knew he couldn't do the job anymore. But after being with the same company for almost 25 years, he was scared to leave. Again, I was convicted to pray for my husband's work situation, not for my gain, but for his. 
I'm happy to say that my husband is now employed by a new company and is content in his position. Our family has morphed to fit his new routine, and we are making it work. What an encouragement Martha has been. God has used her wisdom in many situations that we have had to deal with. She reads the Bible in the morning. She watched War Room and now has a prayer wall in her closet. She read Power of a Praying Wife and then posted prayer notes through, uh, throughout the house. We read 31 Creative Ways and she did those activities. She came to me out of the blue one day and said, I made room for your shampoo on the shelf in the shower. This wasn't something I had asked for. I had always just kept it on the floor. But that let me know that this, that she was thinking of me. Martha was supportive of us starting a small group and continues to help me lead it. All of these actions of hers have encouraged me. Even when I lost my job, she was very supportive. Even though we have our current roles, sometimes we have to continue to be flexible. Our roles may adjust. My goal is to try to fill a need that will help her in her day-to-day routine. I may often fail, but I try to put her needs ahead of my own. John buys me flowers each month on our month anniversary. He opens the door for me. He shovels the walkway and cleans off my vehicle. He sends me random texts to let me know he's thinking of me. He shows up at home or at school with a latte. He does Mother's Month for the month of May, a gift each day from Mother's Day through the end of the month. He does the 12 days of Christmas by putting a gift under my pillow each day for the 12 days leading up to Christmas. When I make supper, he cleans up after. He sees a need and fills it. I could go on and on. What I'm hoping you see is that the gestures don't need to be grand, but they need to be consistent and often, small but heartfelt. John always places his hand on my leg when we're driving. He always holds my hand when we're walking. Touch your spouse. This bodily contact keeps the connection alive. We make it a priority to sit next to each other at the movies or church or other outings to be an example to our kids of the priority relationship. Be the example you want your kids and others to see. Read books. Go to conferences. Work. Work hard to keep your marriage intact. You can't just go with the flow. We both tried that and failed. You need to make a conscious effort every day to make your marriage work. As my husband said, put your spouse's needs before your own, and you can't go wrong. Thank you. I, um, I was just struck with the fact that the, uh, the statement, the student has become the master. I go see John now for marriage counseling. After I heard her list, I was like, I did not teach him all that. Some people are just good at stuff. But uh, I, I hope what you're hearing here is not perfection. It's not ease. It wasn't just simple. This wasn't two compatible people because their profiles lined up. Um, you know, my efforts in their pre-marriage counseling were made so much easier when I had two students show up. Two people who were trying to understand what the role that they were to play in God's plan. How can they honor the image in the portrait? And they were eager and hungry students in order to do that. So, so when you have that, the Lord just throws gas on that fire and he makes that much easier. John and Martha, no doubt, have had their challenges, will continue to have their challenges. There'll be days they have to remind each other that they said such nice things about each other because they've been through that. They know those come.
don't look at this as just, well, those two found their match. That's what the world looks at. Keep, keep going until you finally strike gold. That is not it at all. I understand that there are situations in this room, in our church, where you feel like, yeah, but I want that, but I'm the only one in my marriage that's willing to do that. Please understand that the Lord can do exponentially great things with one obedient person in a relationship. But like they said, it does take two. Eventually, if it falls apart, don't let it fall apart from your lack of of effort and wanting to try to uphold the thing that God has called you to do. For those of you that aren't that far down the road in, in terms of trouble or difficulty, but you, you hear this more from a maintenance standpoint, please understand what they also said needs to be underscored. You cannot cruise control through this. Don't just simply enjoy the good times while you have them. In a sense, get ahead of the good times. Make sure that you continue to create an environment in your marriage where those good times are going to be welcomed and be a part of the, uh, of the thing that the Lord's given you. Gentlemen, I'm calling you this morning, the Lord is calling you this morning to take seriously your role, to always be willing to turn it upside down and say, instead of what I've made it to be, running to an authority route or running to just being a a thermometer that just says what temperature is at home, you know, oh, the the, the little woman's upset, I must go, I'm going to go stay in the garage or something along those lines, but to engage in the work that the Lord has given you. As the leader in your house, as the head of your house, you are to be the most responsible for its temperature. To be responsible, well, there's no love in my house. What are you doing to fan those flames? What are you doing to create that environment? Ladies, when we get to this subject again next month, I trust and I pray the Lord will give you answers and hope and that we'll be able to cut through all of the confusion that goes on outside in the world and talk seriously about what the Lord has for the godly wife. So thank you so much for your attention this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand and close in prayer with me. Um, we're going to dismiss our men out to the hub uh, to continue our challenge, to ask the ladies to stay behind, stay in this room. Michelle has some instruction and some encouragement for you as well. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in such a short time. Lord, uh, this often does feel rushed for us trying to present some of your deeper truths. So I pray that your spirit will allow these principles to rest on the hearts of your people. Do exponentially more than what 30 or so minutes can accomplish. As people leave here today, may these principles, these encouragements, these warnings go with them so that we would continue to have marriages that uphold your glory, that bring honor to the institution that you gave us so many years ago. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give us in Christ. Thank you for loving us sacrificially, for running to our rescue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.